This episode of Upstream in Perspective is brought to you by IHS Markets Upstream Insight. Our team of industry experts analyze the interplay of geopolitical structures, government priorities, corporate strategies, and global markets and technologies to deliver forward-looking solutions that lead to more informed and efficient decisions. These solutions are available via recurring reports, interactive analytics, robust data sets, and bespoke engagements with experts. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com energy. Welcome to Upstream and Perspective. I'm one of your hosts, Jessica Nelson. And of course, I have my main partner in crime, Hill Vaden here. Hill, welcome. Thanks, Jessica. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We're getting a lot of snow here in Colorado this year, so I could sure use some of your some of your Houston weather, actually. Don't, don't visit us um, in August. Yeah, yeah, never it's, mind. It's raining today, so I'm not sure what to wish for. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And joining us again is Brianne Doherty from our financial and capital markets team. Brianne, welcome back. Thank you very much, Jessica. Happy to be yeah. here. Yeah, great. And so on today's podcast, we're going to cover some conventional exploration trends. So joining us again are um, two of our researchers, Keith King, a research analyst director on our Plays and Basins team, and Jerry Kepis, a VP of Research and Analysis for Global Oil. Both of them are back with us on the podcast. Guys, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So from a global perspective, um, conventional exploration and discoveries are at the lowest level in, in seven decades. And in many ways, the rise of unconventional resources has diverted some attention away from conventional EP. But Keith and Jerry, I think you're going to talk a little bit more in detail about some other factors that could be playing into the story today, right? Yeah. So Keith, I prefaced a little bit of that on the state of the conventional EMP. Can you give us a summary of the current trends in exploration? So if we look at the last four years, we're discovering about 13 billion barrels a year. The world consumes somewhere around 55 billion barrels equivalent oil and gas. So we're not replacing what we produce. And we're also not replacing what we develop. So we're actually discovering less than we develop and developing less than we produce. so 13 billion barrels a year for the last four years. If you take the five years prior to that, it's about twice that amount. And are these so, barrels of oil or barrels of oil equivalent? Both oil equivalent and oil. Okay, so even with the gas, we're under... Uh... Well, I, I think we should say, and I know you would, Keith, that the, the, um, the, the unseen actor in our, in our time here today is the unconventional. Right, yeah. which has been filling in some of that gap. So it's it's not quite as uh, dire, but but nonetheless, even with the unconventional, there's a gap. There, there's a gap. And if you look at the production of oil, for example, about 90% of it is conventional. So replacement of conventional is an important issue. The unconventional has added about 7 million barrels a day of production, so it's certainly not insignificant. And it's kind of diverging and going along its own course. So... Although after the price collapse in 2014, we saw that conventional spending, conventional drilling, conventional discoveries maintained sort of a flattish profile since then, we saw a big uptake in the amount of unconventional drilling and unconventional production. So you're right, conventional has suffered because there's been more and more money spent on the unconventional side. 
So as we, you know, that there's some names that, you know, if, if there's such a thing as a brand name and expiration, that there's some names that are tossed around. Kiana obviously is in the headlines, you know, as one of the successes over the past, you know, five years or so. And then you've got uh, all of what's happening in the Eastern Med, predominantly gas. And then, uh, you know, a little bit more quietly, but but there was a lot of headlines around uh, Senegal over the past couple of years. Are there, you know, what, what's uh, what's the status of some of these big names? And, and, and of them, I feel like Guyana is only the one the one oil big name out there. The rest are very gassy. Um, yes, Guyana is oil prone. It's about uh, 7 billion barrels discovered so far, I believe, 6 or 7. And, and probably has that much to go again. We still don't know the limits of the play. We don't know how to what extent it goes into Suriname. Patch has made a discovery in Suriname, so it at least goes in Suriname to some extent, but we don't know how big the play is. But yes, if you look at the last 10 years or so, it's been kind of a gassy picture, especially with Rubuma Delta and then um, the Eastern Med. Um, if I could add, but let me ask first, I mean, there's a story around who the explorations are as companies versus the, the bases where the explorations generate the best result. So we can... Um, should we go into that now, or how best to to address that? Well, one of the interesting things is that companies have looked at this downturn and responded differently. So some companies have pulled back completely into the unconventional plays. Marathon would be an example of that. Um, and these companies are probably losing their deep water expertise, so people are becoming more specialized. It would be difficult to imagine a pioneer or partially going out in deep water and drilling a well today, given the fact that they focus so much on the unconventional. But people are also specializing in basins. People are participating in fewer basins than they did five or ten years ago. They're specializing. They're not exploring as widely as they did before. The other, the other thing that's interesting is companies like Total and ExxonMobil actually have become more aggressive in frontier and emerging areas where most companies have become less aggressive in frontier and emerging areas and chosen to focus on maturing areas. And these these mature frontier classifications are referring to the uh, uh, system that you guys introduced last year on uh, kind of basin life cycles? Yes, so um, it's life cycles of exploration. It starts out with frontier. That is prior to the first commercial discovery. After the first commercial discovery, it enters an emerging period where you're exploring to the geographic and stratigraphic limits of the basin. Guiana is a good example of that. Then there's emerging. Guiana is emerging or frontier? Emerging. Okay. So it was emerging um, really because there's onshore discoveries that entered the emerging uh, stage when those Miocene discoveries were made tens of years ago. So it, when you're exploring to the stratigraphic limits of the basin, it's in the emerging phase. And then the maturing phase is when discoveries year on year is declining, but infrastructure is in place, so it can still be very economic. And we're seeing more people focusing on the maturing stage. The reason is, is we can bring things on quicker. And the North Sea and Gulf of Mexico are good examples. Hey, could I add to that, Keith? Because I, I think that's very important. So, so um, as Jessica alluded, uh, Keith basically created a classification system that we have used um, for several years now to reach across roughly 2,500 basins globally. 
that are in the IHS Market Eden database. And it's allowed us to be much more quantitative with judgment in terms of what kind of basins are, are most likely to be favorable for expiration and where companies are really spending their expiration dollars. So there's a couple of things that are, are really important to talk about, and Keith, forgive me. One is roughly, depending on where we're talking, 80 to 90% of all conventional new field wildcats are drilled in these maturing phase basins that Keith just talked about. Um, prior to the price of oil drop in 2015, it was about 80%. The last five years, it jumped to 86 87%. Right, so so most conventional new field wildcats are not in frontier basins; they're in these maturing basins where the risk proposition is more favorable. Although you're much more likely to find these smaller fields, right? And it's more favorable commercially because it's close to infrastructure. It's much more likely that you'll get those, even if smaller fields, on stream in shorter time periods. So, going back to the frontier. If I could say so, when we talk about the companies, think about there was always a small set of companies who were successful in frontier emerging phase basin exploration because that's where the highest risk activities take place. That's always been difficult. Um, whereas, and there's nothing wrong with it, right? So some of the the, the best exploration value is really generated in maturing phase basins, although the size of the fields as Keith would have said, is generally much smaller, right? So, so we actually have to be much more specific about what kind of exploration we mean and who's good at what. Now, I've been looking at this, uh, and I'm an exploration geologist myself back in the day, but you know, since that time, um, it seems to me, and this can be demonstrated, that this is a bit episodic, that you know, every 10 or 15 year, years, the, 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 the industry situation changes a bit. Um, the exploration companies, and there, there's only been, in any given 10, 15 year period, there's, there's less successful exploration companies than the fingers of my hand, which is 10, right? And successful <laughs> exploration is those in frontier emerging, those that can have success in at least two different basins, Okay. Um, uh, because this is a very difficult business. And when More you say company, hold, hold on, when you say different basins, do you mean different in terms of geography, in terms of uh, e emerging versus maturing, or, or I'm I'm referring to the fronting, frontier emerging phase uh, basins, right? Because that's that, that that's what gets the most publicity, right? Um, because it's very difficult, right? So one of the things to differentiate is what individual companies do and what industry does. So the full value chain has to include frontier and emerging exploration, because that's where it begins. Frontier and emerging discoveries are 10 times bigger than maturing. So the maturing may still be economic because you've got infrastructure, but you're not adding global volumes if you don't have industry participation in those early phases. Now you're right, some companies are notoriously very good, like Cosmos and formerly Cobalt and Tullo in frontier emerging exploration. And unfortunately, those companies have kind of suffered a little bit. I mean, Cosmos has gotten acreage in the Gulf of Mexico to try to balance their portfolio, but Cobalt's gone bankrupt and Tullo has a debt problem. 
So a lot of these companies that were very good frontier and emerging explorationists now are suffering financially. Right. And now, companies, again, it, it narrows the number of participants in these important basins. Yeah. And the other, the other thing thing, right? about both unconventional and also um, maturing basin exploration, in a way, it pulls production forward. You're shortening the size of time, pulling production forward, while not investing in frontier and emerging, which has a longer time horizon, 10, 15, 20, even 50 years of production. So you're trying to pull it forward when you focus on unconventional and maturing basin exploration. So just going back to earlier in your conversation, who is it that you said had in the in the past little bit has migrated further towards frontier exploration again? ExxonMobil is a prime example. Okay. Um, I think their success in Guyana uh, gave them um, the confidence to go out and look for acreage elsewhere. So they are investing. We think that they'll continue to invest more money in frontier. We don't see them pulling back. Are there yeah, any other players? It seems to be a corporate philosophy now, yeah. and Total to some extent as well. But also, almost everyone else, without exception, has defocused frontier and emerging, and now are focusing on the maturing end. Keith, so, Keith, there is something worth saying there, as thinking about Brianne's questions here, and that is the, the, the best exploration companies in the world right now are, for example, ENI, the Italian company, right? Also, ExxonMobil's numbers are great. Um, and, and there are a few others. But what we now have, when we say best and frontier merging versus maturing, and E&I, for example, they may drill 15% of their wells in frontier emerging phase basins and have some big successes. But 85% of their exploration activity is in these maturing phase basins. So, um, so their exploration... I would, call that, I would call that a well-balanced portfolio. Absolutely, right? So... So uh, they, they have a big need for frontier exploration uh, activity and success, by the way, quite remarkably so. But again, 85% of their activities are in these maturing phase basins, right? So this is, a uh, in a way, a portfolio management exercise as well. But now talking about... And, and to your point, ENI has um, doubled down on the Middle East, picking up acreage there in some somewhat mature basins. And another example would be Cosmos picking up the acres in the Gulf of Mexico to balance their portfolio. Right. So, um, uh, Keith, I think the point you just made a few minutes ago was really important, which is, again, there's a difference between what happened to the industry in aggregate versus the stories and differentiation of individual companies, right? So, yeah. so from an industry perspective, we have an industry that's drilling 50% less in terms of the number of new field wildcats than five years ago. And we see no rebound there. We, we don't see that coming back, even though the cost of that well drilling activity is 50% what it was, right? So so that, that's the broader thing. And because of that, as Keith started off, we're not seeing substantial new volumes entering into the system, right? So that's the industry. Now, inside of that, well, companies are scrambling to differentiate themselves and moving in different ways where they can get capital, secure financial interest, and be successful. And sometimes the answers for those companies are really different today as opposed to what they were five or ten years ago. How much of uh, 
Yeah, how much of so E and I, um, you know, noticeably absent of their portfolio is unconventional uh, oil or, or, or gas. And I think the same is true with Cosmos, whereas, you know, two others that, that I would have put in that star category of global explorers, Anadarko and Noble, the unconventional world seems to have uh, you know, changed their appetite for exploration. Uh, Anadarko having that's part of the specialization thing. People are spe choosing to specialize in different resource types, conventional versus unconventional, or even within certain basins. They're not, most companies are now not trying to do the wide spectrum that they did five and ten years ago. They're specializing. So and, and when we... Specialization comes a loss of expertise. So it's going to be difficult for those companies that specialized in the unconventional to go back and reestablish a conventional system. If you've left the Gulf of Mexico and you're five, ten years on, you will have lost the engineering and geological expertise to explore in the Gulf of Mexico. Also, a company that's left the Gulf of Mexico, they're not going to go back into the Gulf of Mexico with the same management. Management, management is not going to say, oh, I've changed my mind. The Gulf of Mexico is the best place. I'm going to go back in it after pulling out two years ago. So when we think, I mean, even back, I guess, let's say six years ago, when there was a lot more frontier exploration going on and exploration was a much bigger and more talked about part of the industry. And it seemed that it was happening all over the world. There were basins, everybody was exploring in different places. It, there was a lot of activity going on and the auctions were going at premium prices, etc. Now that we're having this more focused time period where we've got fewer of these frontier explorers, I'm going to also assume there's been a more focused look at, at exactly where these frontier explorers are going mm -hmm. and and where's what has fallen out of favor the most, where are the dollars actually still going and expected to stay? How, how does it look from a geographic standpoint um, for the now that we've got this sort of smaller pool of frontier explorers out there? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. So Guyana is one area, for example, where people are focused and I think there's one open block left that Guyana government just hasn't offered up. So, I mean, it's 100% leased. So that's an area of focus. The other interesting area that's turned around is Brazil. So there's renewed interest in the Santos Basin, the Campos Basin, and other basins in Brazil. So uh, that's a place to watch. And also the MSGBC Basin, you know, off of Senegal, Mauritania, and Gambia. So those are areas of interest. But there's some areas that have declined in attractiveness, like the Niger Delta, because the terms that Nigeria has changed back in November have gotten harsher. There's less exploration and there's just more uncertainty there. So you're right. There's, there's basins on the ascendancy and there's basins that are declining in interest. Those are all Atlantic margin basins that you mentioned. What, what about things outside of the Atlantic margin? Is there anything to be excited about? Eastern yeah. Med, I guess, is one? Eastern Med is one. The Otway Basin off of southern Australia, there's some increased activity in. But you pointed up a really good point. It tends to be Atlantic margin focused these days. One of the areas that we don't think much about is the high Arctic, which is you know, off of Greenland and even off of northern Canada. Ten years ago, people were actively picking up acreage and choosing seismic and planting wells. That's totally dropped off of everyone's radar. The, the only exception of that would be the Barents Sea. Yeah, in fact, I would say 10 or 15 years ago, 
the 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 offshore Arctic was recognized as kind of you know in terms of the the last place for very large discoveries to be made. That includes offshore uh, uh, in the Arctic in North America as well as Russia, and through a combination of risk and cost and perception and sanctions, almost all of that's completely gone. Yeah. And if you think about the horizon that we now have closing in on the EMP industry because of climate concerns and, and the energy transition, is it's quite likely as, it, as the that horizon approaches, that investment activity will never happen. Um, whereas 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that was front and center for uh, a number of larger companies in terms of that's where they would go to. Really remarkable changes here. So, so do you think it's fair to say point, that, do you think it's fair to say that geology, oh, it's the whole idea of peak demand. So, you know, for the first time in my 40 years of experience, we're, we're talking about a time in which oil demand will decline and perhaps even gas demand will decline. This causes uncertainty on the role of the investor. So what would you do in that climate? Would you shorten your cycle times? Would you um, steer away from frontier emerging basins and go to maturing basins? Or would you do the opposite? Of course, you would shorten cycle times. You would go to maturing basins. So industry, in many ways, is acting like they believe in the peak demand story. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying industry is acting that way. Is there something to, I mean, a, a counter to that? would be that you know that there, there's a the, the old cliche that the, the good news is I didn't build, drill their eye hole the bad news is I found gas and right now the world is so long a gas that the opportunity to find more gas you know is, is bad news once again is that perhaps discouraging exploration as much or more than the fossil fuel in the fossil fuel debate yeah that, that's a good point there, there's some really simple logic around this um, the world finds about 60% gas recoverable. Last year it was 65%, but 60%. But the reuse of gas is far less than the use of oil. I don't know what the ratio is. So we're, we're finding more of the commodity we don't need. We find less of the commodity that, that we need. So it's only logical that we're going to be oversupplied in gas. Despite all our technical efforts, when we go out and look for oil and gas, industry is not very good, and I've been on the end of the business, is not very good at discriminating when you're going to find oil or versus gas. So you find gas almost by accident. And because it's 60% of what you find, there's more of it, and because we use less of it, we're oversupplied. So we have this LNG glut for the next 10 years, which also deters investment. So that would see Brianne, I thought you had a line of questioning you were pursuing. Um, I did, but this might be a more interesting conversation. <laughs> the question was just about, it sounds as though when we start talking about where there's been movement away from some of the basins that had previously been maybe big focus for a lot of explorers, that there's not as much on necessarily what the geology might be, but a lot of it's now sitting in where the above ground risk is. And, and there's just a different way that that these companies are possibly valuing the, the risk of, of some of these explorations. It's a combination of the two. So if you look at the North Sea, for example, the North Sea has gotten a lot of interest recently because it's one of these maturing areas. 
it's in relatively shallow water compared to the deep water Gulf of Mexico or other areas or even offshore Nigeria. So it has a lower supply cost. And the governments there have been better at creating terms that attract the industry. Whereas in Nigeria, it's been the opposite. Nigeria probably has more exploration potential locked up in its rocks, but, but the government has been less kind when it comes to terms yeah. attracting. And, and there's a lack of certainty around those. And there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, maybe a, a, a simple uh, um, a way to think about this, at least for me, is that let's say prior to 2015 and prior to the end of investment or investor love of exploration per se, if there ever was, but there were probably, you know, really far too many dollars pursuing quality exploration opportunities then, whereas now we have much less in terms of exploration dollars pursuing quality opportunities, right? Because the number of explorations have dropped, those who have continued or have declined their activity, et cetera. So you can be a lot choosier. So if I'm a lot choosier and I'm trying to lower risk and, 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 and I'm thinking about the time to develop and cycle time and all that, why am I going to go to a place where the above ground risk is much higher? It takes me longer to get things done. Things are less uncertain. Policy is less clear. It's not clear how you commercialize gas. You're not going to take a lot of time with that. You're going to go to a place where if yeah. you do find something, the pathway to commercialization is much more certain, right? And so that's, And that's why companies are focusing on fewer basins. Right. Their, their criteria for success is higher. They're looking at break-evens. They're looking at places they have expertise. And they yeah. just winnow out everything else. Right. Which I think is, I mean, that's a topic that we're exploring across all aspects of energy at the moment. It is really this decapitalization storyline. Absolutely. And producers themselves, whether it's decapitalization from the pressure coming from, from from the financial community or internally themselves, they're just have higher thresholds for returns that are required yeah. in order to go out and do these types of activities. Do you guys see that as, as having a huge impact? And I, I do hate to put anybody on the spot as far as choosing winners and losers when it comes to these types of conversations. But do you think that that's going to have a big impact, let's say five years from now, about who's standing and still doing this stuff? Do we think we have some people that naturally, some players that naturally are are going to come through this and continue to be in a position to explore five years, 10 years from now, and maybe it's a smaller pool? Who, who might they be? Um, what does that look like? Well, it's well, a good question, and, and the answer may surprise you. It may not be the explorers. It may be the resource holders. So in a world that peaks demand in the 2030s, why explore for anything more? Why, why go out and look for something that takes 10 years to develop and doesn't reach peak production for another 15 years or whatever? Why not just lower the RP ratio, which, which is the reserves to production ratio, in the Middle East countries. So Saudi Arabia goes from an RP ratio, once again, it's reserved production, of 60 down to 30. They double their production. Yeah, I, I think what, um, what Keith is laying out is, is a question which is not, not just who might be doing this, but why would they be doing it? Because you could say from an uh, uh, aggregate energy perspective, we have so much already discovered 
this is the this is a line of argument that why would you go out and explore for more and risk so much? What what from what's the purpose of doing that? Now we know when that translates to an individual company, it's a different response because an individual company might say, well. I'm not actually good at exploiting already discovered resource, but I'm really good at frontier exploration. So if I'm trying to differentiate myself in capital markets and get someone to reward me because I can do this one thing really well, I might continue to do that, right? So, um, so I would argue that there will continue to be some that continue that, but as the, the old exploration independent idea, their ability to raise capital is more and more difficult, right? So, so we may have still a few of those, but every year they're dropping off, right? So, does that create any, that, sorry, does this create any upside supply risk if all of a sudden the the world is really high grading its exploration portfolio at the same time and potentially bringing the best projects to market faster? Yeah. Absolutely. So in a world where there's peak demand, there's no problem, right? Because wind and solar take over in the 2030s and going further. If that peak demand does not occur. Or it just slows down. Or just slows down. Yeah, it just, yeah. Then we are undersupplied. And the interesting thing is, is a company can invest in both those scenarios. It's got a choice. To invest in, okay, I'm going to ramp up production, I'm going to be part of the energy future, oil and gas energy future, or no, I'm going to take BP's approach and says I'm going to be producing less in the year 2050 than I am now. Yeah. um, One of the things we're working on from, again, this is the global picture as opposed to how individual company might react, right? But the global picture is in the 2025 to 2030 period, we may see some real impact from the very thing we're talking about. That um, if if the rate of demand destruction in oil and gas slows down, okay. So in other words, if things don't top out as quickly as we think, right? We may have some severe supply price spiking and disruptions, but. That's five years from now, and it may be that that the industry will be unable to respond then. There'll be a price signal, but nobody is positioned anymore to be able to respond in aggregate because the service sector capacity will not be there because companies may have become so specialized in certain things that there's only a couple of them doing that, right? Um, We're also having to layer on the above ground risk aspects, right? Um, if if nothing really changes in Iran, despite the extraordinary potential that is in that country's oil and gas sector, and it's it's an external issue, an internal issue, and a whole nother discussion to boot, then that potential is frozen. Yeah. We're looking at Venezuela. Venezuela well. Yeah, we're looking at Venezuela, and it's what's happening from an above ground risk and people perspective is is horrible. From an oil and gas investment perspective, almost no matter what happens now, it's hard to see that you see extraordinary recovery there in the next five years. It just, it's not in position to happen. So in the next five years, you're really setting the stage for that 
2025 to 2030 period where we think a lot of this really might come home to roost. So a concept to leave you with is that in these scenarios where we peak demand in the 2030s or don't peak demand in 2030s, the world could either be oversupplied or undersupplied. So where so that was, and that's what makes investment. I call it the investment dilemma. That's the investment dilemma that companies are facing. Do I plan my budget around the world that peaks in the 2030s or even sooner, as in some of our economy scenario, or do I say no? All that's rubbish. The world is going to continue to use more oil and gas through the year 2100. Certainly, there will be a class of a class to emerge to fill each of those scenarios, right? And so where... What does the average, what does the average company do? Somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. <laughs> well, then, they, then, then they'll fail. You either oversupplied or undersupplied. No, but I, the point is, if you try to make the middle choice, that's who's going to go bankrupt. Yeah. So, so where do you see leadership? So, so I mean, there. I bet you know. Between all of us here, we would pick the same six or eight names in terms of the leaders of exploration over the past five to ten years. If, if the resource holders are uh, advantaged for, for simply having the acreage, that biases the NOCs. But obviously, the specialists have skills that they don't. Yeah. I, I actually, um, I, I think they do have the resource, but I, and we discuss this all the time. I, I don't think it's going to be the NOCs. I think for the, for the most part, and there's a couple of differences, their ability to assess risk and take on the risk of expiration um, has always been a problem for them. So while they might have the resource potential, I don't see them stepping in. the world? What? The investment, of, you look at the investment of the NOCs, they actually declined in drilling the most after the price collapse. Yeah, forget it. And they did the biggest transition away from frontier emerging to maturing. So the NOCs, as a community, are the most conservative of the independents and the majors. Yeah. Right. So if we look at the independents, I mean, uh, th there's a big story in North America where, where the, uh, you know, the financial sector is just not funding uh, yeah. the North America independent the way that it was. Could, right. could companies like Tullo or Cosmos or uh, Cobalt, could, could they reemerge and find funding for their projects? Or, or do they, if it's not the NOCs, do the independents have a chance of doing it? Uh, I, think I think they're history. What's they're that? History. They're history for now. Unless they, unless there, there's an investor class in Asia, right, where all the growth still is and stuff like that, that, that we see emerge and says, we have a vested, we, we still want to reward this behavior because we need it. Right, so that so in other words, it's it's a an emergent investor class out of Asia where there's still serious growth that that appears and invests or creates or sustains the life of the, the few of these exploration companies that are left. Um, right now, right now, if let's say um, it won't be cobalt, they're 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 bankrupt and you know et cetera. But let's just say. Think if you're a new company right now, even if you have a great track record, if Tolo rebranded themselves somehow, right, and said, okay, we're not going to do development anymore, we're going to just do exploration, right? And then sell it. And they'd reach out and try to raise capital. I, 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 I think they'd be hammered. I, I, I don't think they could raise any capital in London, in New York. I just don't. The, the, only, the only contrary point, and, I, and it's a long shot, it's a lottery ticket. 
is, is at some point people say, well, you know, this peak demand thing may be just a lot of rubbish. It may not may not happen. And the world actually may be short of crude and natural gas, not not in five or 10 years, but in 15 or 20 years. Sure. I'm going to buy a lottery ticket and take a long shot on these companies that well survive. Right. But in those five years, I mean, can Tolo survive five years? Well, that's no. That's and and so I think the I think the issue here is if it's not going to be the NOCs, I guess that means that it's going to be Total and Exxon that hold the market share in, I think in ten years. They're going to do it because it's just a small portion of their activity, mm -hmm. right? So that they can continue to do that because they might look at this as okay. Let's just say they're spending fifteen billion dollars a year, which is a lot less than they were for for um, let's just say uh, corporate, right? And they're spending a billion dollars on expiration, whereas five years ago they were spending two and a half or three. Okay, so it's a lot less. Costs are a lot lower, so they can, you know, get more for that dollar. They may see that as expiration is the cost of our developing as many options for us as possible. So we retain a wider set of options to deal with this uncertainty and business environment that Keith laid out. Right, because because this is the challenge. Right, they have the broadest spectrum of po possible outcomes that we as an industry probably have had, certainly since the 1980s, but maybe post World War II. Um, so I, I think they will view that as we have to invest in these options for the possibility that we might need them. Let's just make it a smaller portion of our capital spend. Yeah, and they've yeah. arguably they've, they've done that. Yeah. That's a big change, right? Because in prior years or decades, that those majors have been able to rely on the Cosmos, the Anadarkos of the world to do the heavy lifting when it comes to expiration. And they just come in and pick up. Well, this is the old spring yeah. week, right? Let, let the let the smaller companies grow and, and then I will harvest that uh, when right. and if, right? But now they'll have to do it themselves. And maybe, interestingly, the remarkable part of what the last couple of years tell us is ExxonMobil has showed that they could do this, at least in one basin, right? And what I would urge for ExxonMobil is we need to watch and see, okay, can they duplicate that success in a couple of other basins? That That's that's the test for them. Yeah, um, can Total duplicate and do more in the Southern Otaniqua Basin? Can they do that in a couple of other places? Because now they have to do it. They, they can't rely on the small companies to be the starter kits, as it were. They're going to have to do it. Yeah. But they've showed in a couple of cases that maybe they could, which is a big change. Yeah, I think this is, uh, I know this has been a, a, an interesting conversation, which leaves us with, with even more questions, Jessica, but, but I think those questions will have to come. Well, we're, Another we're, podcast. we're Keith and I are very interested in maintaining a higher level of job security. So <laughs> if, if we answer all the questions, then we're toast, right? So it's it's very a valid simple. point. Well, what, 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 what's interesting though, things will start to unfold in the next three to five years. We, we, we will know what path we're following. I think it's even earlier than that, shorter than that, but awesome. uh, yeah. Well, thank goodness for podcasts. You guys got a side hustle because exploration geologists—that they might all be looking for podcasts here in the next uh, ten or twenty years. Well, hey, hey, uh, finders, lucky. We were first with you guys, right? Remember your friends, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's 
right. That's right. So good conversation um, on the competitive landscape and and um, in the ENP, if that's changed or really just if the financial sector has less patience with us, right? So um, thank you guys for joining us. Um, Jerry, I think you remember last time we like to end our podcast on a fun note. So I think I asked you last time who you'd have a drink with if you could pick anyone. So I want to I want to pivot a little bit back to the industry um, this time. But given everything you've shared with us today, can I, I answer know. that question, Jessica? Yeah, sure. I'd have to drink with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may get your chance in a couple of weeks. <laughs> there you go. Um, so so let's let's pivot though. Can you both? You've thrown a lot at us today. Give us a hypothetical energy headline that we might see in 2020, or if you want to think about the next three to five years, what's something we might see from the um, energy industry? Just hypothetical here. Go ahead, Keith. No. <laughs> I was hoping you'd handle that one. Okay, well, my, here's my take. I'll say um, Asian investors buy 51% controlling share of ExxonMobil. Wow. Well, if you're ExxonMobil, Right, and you're this incredible machine, and there are others, and you've been built to go do it. Then you find that your your investors they say, "Oh, we don't really want that so much anymore." So your value to them is much less, right? So you got to go to where would a company like that be most valued? Well, it's going to be the part of the world that still consumes and is growing demand for not just oil and gas, but all the forms of energy. It's a, it's a very different investor class that actually may see more value in these remarkable machines that have been built um, than the current investors. So that's the that wasn't just a throw out there. Um, I've I've had at least two thoughts in the past year, and that was one of them. Yeah, that's I a top bold that. headline. <laughs> it it is a bold headline, but I see your point. Especially it's a it's a region that has also prioritized resource capture and security of supply. It has to. So there is an argument that right. they will continue to do that. Well, they 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 they're not going to commit national economic suicide, are they? Right. So, if and if you're ExxonMobil and you were worth two hundred and fifty billion dollars, and and I'm making this up, and in four years you're worth sixty billion dollars, and, and again I'm making this up, um, wh who can I go to that would see more value in ExxonMobil than the current investor class? How do you think the U.S. regulators would treat that? Well, that's been the national security argument, but I, I would say if you recall that back in the day, and it's 2005, and rolls ourselves back, is this was an issue with Unical, right? Which is probably the last uh, medium-sized entity or biggest-sized entity that was a U.S. company that was pursued by um, the uh, Chinese. And I, I would say two things about that. Uh, one is that the leading proponent of saying that we, we should not let a Chinese entity buy Unical on Capitol Hill was Chevron because they wanted to buy Unical and did, right? So um, I, I, it's not 2005. And increasingly, if we have these multinational companies, I'm just wondering at what point might those type of policy considerations come into play? I, I just don't think it'll be the same as as previous years, that's all. And, and also, you know, these companies, they're, they can be very effective at lobbying, right? So they've got an argument to make here as well. And I, I don't put that aside easily. All right, Keith, did you have a headline as well? No, I can't top that one. <laughs> sure you can. Sure you can. <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Well, as always, thank you guys for joining the podcast. I hope you'll come back and, and talk with us again. Um, always a good conversation. And, and thank you to all of our listeners for joining another episode of Upstream in Perspective. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. Also, if you haven't checked us out on social media, please search for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.